0: One thing that really kind of stood out to me about this question, you know, how this person kind of mentioned how they they feel like they need to kind of apologize for the way that they are kind of biologically. You know, and I think this is like as a result of, you know, like a society that is kind of built like a certain way to accommodate neurotypical, kind of as I prefer to say, like neuroconforming kind of people, which kind of, you know, like how this person's brain works is just like a different way. It's not wrong. It's, you know, and it's and it's fine. And I think if you're dating someone who makes you feel bad about something that's out of your control. Or if someone make, it makes you feel like a burden or an inconvenience, like that's kind of probably not someone that, you know, you really kind of want to be with long term because they'll always see your disability as something that's like separate to you rather than something that's kind of like part of like who you are.
1: Welcome to the multi amory Podcast. I'm Jace.
2: I'm Emily.
3: And I'm Dedeker.
2: We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past.
3: Whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging, casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you and we're here for you.
1: On this episode of the Multiamory Podcast, we're doing another Q&A episode, this time with polyamorous content creator Lian Yao. If you would like to submit your own questions to be on the show, become one of our patrons at patreon.com slash multiamory. And in our private Discord and Facebook groups, we put out calls for questions about once a month for these Q&A episodes. Lian Yao, our guest today, is also known as Polyphilia and is a polyamory educator and sex-positive influencer. She creates and curates humorous and educational memes, tips, videos, and other bite-sized content on non-monogamy, queer relationships, and sex positivity. She has narrated polyamory audiobooks, launched the Happy Poly Days podcast, and provides non-monogamous peer support to individuals and couples across the globe. And she was featured as a top influencer to follow by Men's Health and Cosmopolitan. Also for you listening, if you're interested in learning more about our fundamental communication tools that we reference all the time on this show, you can check out our book, Multiamory Essential Tools for Modern Relationships, which covers some of our most used communication tools for all types of relationships, not just romantic ones or just polyamorous ones. You can find links to buy it at multiamory.com slash book or wherever fine books are sold. Alternatively, the first nine episodes of this podcast also cover some of our most widely used and shared communication tools. Leanne, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Hi, so glad to be here.
2: Yeah, Leanne, it's great to finally have you on the show. I think when people, you know, hear about non-monogamy and want to learn more about it and turn to something like TikTok or Instagram, they're going to find you definitely. So just for our audience or anyone listening, what do you think your goal and mission as a polyamorous content creator is?
0: Yeah, so um, when I started my page, I wanted to create kind of bite-sized educational content for people that was very easily digestible and visually accessible and more importantly, like very easily shareable. I find that, the, you know, obviously people have been making content and writing books and articles about polyamory for a very long time. But a lot of it is very long form. And, you know, that's great for people who want to get an in-depth look at what polyamory is and how to do it and things like that. But for people outside of the community or for people who just, you know, like want a cursory view of what it is and isn't, that can be like a barrier for kind of some people to learn more about that information. And so, you know, I started out just creating funny memes for people to share and just to kind of get the conversation started. And over time, um, you know, I started this about two and a half years ago and it's kind of grown into the platform that it is today you know, I think it's really important to get people talking about non-monogamy. And even if someone doesn't know anything about it, at least like, you know, the concept has been planted in their minds and they know it's a thing. And kind of my goal has always been to reach like as many people as possible. And, uh, you know, so they they get an idea of what it is rather than like the ins and outs of how it works. And if people are interested, they can learn more. But, you know, kind of, I want to be kind of that starting point. I started my page uh, as well to like, just inject a little bit of humor and levity like into the conversation i think my memes were kind of a big part of that because yeah like a lot of the existing content that was there was full of information and you know a really good resource but it was also very serious and you know particularly around topics like oh um you know like if your partner leaves you to be monogamous with someone else or if you go through multiple breakups at the same time or you have scheduling conflicts i wanted to have like a funny relatable way to kind of talk about it so people could relate to each other and share in that, but also like have, you know, a bit of a laugh. So kind of my goal is education, but also entertainment, because I feel like things stick in people's minds more if it's entertaining.
1: So fun piece of trivia, when we were starting our podcast and figuring out the name for it, you know, initially our podcast was just about polyamory. And so we went with that, the whole joke about polyamory is wrong, it should be multiamory or polyphilia, but mixing Latin and Greek roots is wrong that whole joke and we were debating between which of the two and ended up going with multi-amory and then you came along later and took the other one so we're we're sort of long-lost twins in a certain way it's good
3: for <laughs> joke, joke for joke representation for that joke there, that gets yeah, sent I, to us at right. least all once, of us are here multiple times per year at the <laughs> yeah yeah, exactly. yeah
0: like I feel like this has been you know a long time coming as well this kind of convergence so because because yeah like that was kind of my logic the time like there's this meme on the internet you know right. I make memes like Multiamory already exists, so, you know, like, I'm not going to steal that thunder, I'm going to take the other one. And I also liked kind of polyphilia, the kind of alliteration of the two Ps. That's kind of like why I have that logo, uh, like the little kind of two hearts kind of oh, thing. Yeah. It's like two Ps kind of facing apart. So yeah, like, I'm, that's why I'm really excited to be here, because I feel like, <laughs> yeah, two sides of the same coin, pretty much.
3: I do feel like maybe some armchair science here. It's like you can almost track kind of where someone is in their polyamorous journey for like when they discover that meme. Because what I notice on the polyamory subreddit is, again, at least like once per month, there's someone who thinks they're the first person to discover that meme, yeah, and they post it in the polyamory <laughs> subreddit. And like, people are very nice, right? You know, people fortunately aren't like mean to them, but it is kind of funny. Where I'm just like, I feel like this is this is a tiny milestone in everyone's non-monogamy journey as they discover that meme, and they're like, oh my god, how funny! I never thought of it that way. So, so you've been making content for a few years. Just a quick question: you know, how many years were you in the polyamorous community or connected to the polyamorous community before? switching into making content?
0: Yeah, so um, I've been non-monogamous since I was around like 16 or 17. I'm 25 now. And polyamory specifically, I think approximately around like the five-year mark now. And yeah, so like I was kind of in like sexually open relationships first. And then over time, I was like, you know what, like, I don't mind if people develop feelings. I think it's like, you know, just a very natural thing that happens sometimes. So yeah, like over time, just transition to polyamory. So yeah, like I've been doing this for a while, particularly like from it from a young age, which um I think is, you know, becoming increasingly common these days. But definitely when I started out like in my first open relationship, like it was not very commonplace at the time. And I do get a lot of questions about that. Like as a young person, I'm on the kind of cusp of like Gen Z millennial. um, And I think a lot of people kind of when when they see me and they kind of see my life, they're like, oh, this is a person who hasn't figured her life out yet. She, you know, she'll eventually settle down and get married. And, mm. and I think I, I, and I'm bisexual as well. So then there's at that extra layer of it. Cause I feel like a lot of biphobia is involved with like, you know, wanting you to pick a side and, you know, you've been kind of confused or it's a phase. So like there's kind of multiple layers, um, to the kind of stigma that like, uh, you know, has been, you know, lobbed against me. Yeah, like I've, you know, and I think it took a long time for my parents to come around. Like, hmm. um, I think even now it's still like a whole thing that they're trying to kind of get, get the grips so of, you know, at first they were like, Oh, you know, like you, you don't know what true love is. You kind of haven't figured yourself out, you know, like your, your partner doesn't truly love you, uh, et cetera. And now they're just kind of like, we still don't get this, but you know, you're an adult. You've been doing this for a while. You show no sign of stopping. You're doing this professionally. So. Um, you know, like, I feel like there's, uh, you know, we like, I feel like I've had a lot of conversations with my parents through kind of making content that were accelerated and probably wouldn't have happened if I wasn't kind of creating content about it, you know? Yeah. But that's like a whole, you know, my coming out journey has been like a whole other tangent, but, uh, yeah, (laughs) like, I think as a, as a young person, kind of people misjudge me and think that this is something that I'm kind of temporarily doing. And I think this is something that like, yeah, young people get a lot of in, in this space.
3: Yeah, it's it's a particular flavor of shaming. I mean, I know I remember experiencing that, you know, when I first came to non-monogamy when I think I was 21, 22 or something like that, that like, that's the particular flavor of pushback that's really easy to take up the mantle on, right? You, you don't know yet, you're so young, you have your life ahead of you, sure, like maybe it's okay for you to be spreading your wild oats as it were, but like eventually you'll figure it out. And I mean, Emily and Jace, I'm interested to hear from the two of you because I do feel like it's not like, you know, once I once we entered our 30s and 40s that like that pushback evaporated necessarily, but it feels like it's a different flavor, right? It's maybe a more confused flavor because I think the pushback I tend to get is a little bit of like, oh, wait, but but shouldn't you have grown out of this by now? You know, that sort of thing. I don't know what's been your experience.
2: Yeah, I do think it's interesting because I'm 35 and moving into this space of a lot of people have had maybe marriages or gone through sort of the first iteration of like, I'm going through a marriage and then a divorce or I'm deciding wave of
3: divorces. Exactly.
2: I'm deciding kind of in my marriage, like maybe I want a little something more. And so now we're going to open up the relationship. So it is interesting how many people I find in, in our age group that are that are asking questions and being like, oh, yeah, you know, I I am maybe interested in opening up as well. And can you talk to me a little bit more about that? Mm. So I think it's more of a curiosity. But of course, you are always going to get those people who say no monogamy is the best way to go. And what you're doing is is very strange. And I don't understand it or I don't believe in it. But it, it is fascinating as you get older, how many people want to ask you more about it just because it's something that they also are moving into an idea of like, I'm going to go there perhaps, or I'm going to learn about more about it to potentially do it.
0: Yeah. Like, I think it can be invalidating in different ways. If you're a young person, then it's like, oh, you know, this is fine, but you'll grow out of it eventually in a very kind of condescending way. But it sounds like, you know, for you and your age group, it's more like, oh, Shouldn't you have grown out of this by now? Like, like you said, and there's this note of like, again, it's kind of condescension, but kind of, you know, just saying that you're you're immature. Like, whereas I, I guess, like for me, it's more just invalidating because it's like, oh, hmm. you know, you you haven't matured yet, and, and that's you'll become you'll, mature you'll, eventually. Yeah,
3: right? yeah.
1: exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah it's, yeah.
1: it's all relative too, as far as age goes, because I found like at um in my workplace where I'm not, I don't keep polyamory a secret, but I'm also not shouting about it all the time. right? It's like someone would have to look me up to see that, which is easy enough to do. But I find that what I get from people who are older than me is more just this kind of like, why aren't you married and having kids yet? Kind of <laughs> yeah. polyamory aside, it's like, why aren't you settled down? Like, why yeah, aren't about you the
3: most important piece of this. doing
1: this? And I think there is a little bit of that seed of, oh, you haven't kind of reached that level of maturity yet. Or like you've kind of held yourself back maturity-wise or something like that is a little bit of the, the vibe that I get. Um, and especially you know, me being 41, being the oldest of all of us here, where I'm kind of on that cusp of the Gen X millennial, while you're about the same age as my sister, Leanne, and you guys are on that cusp of the Gen Z and millennial. So it's kind of interesting comparing those two cusps and seeing how actually a lot of stuff's pretty similar. And then there are some things where it is different about what's the the reasoning or the excuse or kind of the attitude behind that feedback.
0: Yeah. And I think kind of related to that as well, like, I don't know if you found this, but um, I experience a lot of kind of people like moving the goalposts of like, you know, like the success of my relationship. So, you know, I think this is across age groups where people will go like, oh, you know, your relationship might be going well now, but we'll see you in five years or we'll see right. you in 10 <laughs> years and see how that's going. You know, well, one, you know, a lot of relationships don't last beyond like the two-year mark, you know, monogamous or polyamorous. And secondly, it's, if you are able to prove to them that you are actually happy and secure right now, you know, contrary to kind of what they believe, because lots of people are convinced that like one of you cries yourself to sleep every night, or like you know that mm-hmm. you were coerced into this whole thing, or like you know a whole bunch of other things. But if you're able, like, oh yeah, we're we're all very happy in this dynamic, and we all kind of consenting and we're enthusiastically participating in it. They're always like, OK, well, we'll see you in 10 years and see how that's working out for us. And it's it's not something, you know, it's not like you'll have that conversation again in 10 years. And so, you know, it's just like a like a a gotcha kind of point.
3: Yeah. Or it's like, oh, we'll see when the kids show up or or, when you have to do this or when you have to do that or when they start dating another person, you know, all those kind of things. So I think it's time for us to dive into the questions that we got for this Q&A episode. So first, we're going to do a little disclaimer before we dive into that.
2: As always, we've spent a lot of time studying healthy relationship communication, but we aren't mind readers. We can't absolutely know everything that's going on in your life. Our advice is based solely on the limited information that we have from these questions that we got. So just please take everything with a grain of salt.
3: And remember, as you're listening to these different questions, know that everybody's situation is unique. Of course, we encourage you to use your own judgment. Seek professional help if that's needed. Ultimately, you are the only true expert on your own life and your feelings and your decisions are going to be your own. So with that disclaimer out of the way, let's dive into our first question.
1: All righty. So our first question says, hi there. Hello. Hello. Uh, (laughs) So, This person, they clarify that they are partnered and they're polyamorous and they're practicing kitchen table polyamory, which they've abbreviated to KTP. And it just makes me want to say you down with KTP? Yeah, you, you know,
2: know me. me. Leanne <laughs> <Lian laughs> may not know that. Reference.
0: Yeah, speaking of aging ourselves. <laughs> yeah, oh, exactly.
2: Exactly. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
0: well, that one over my head. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Gen X
1: and older millennials were like, yeah, you know me. And then everyone <laughs> younger than that's like, what are you talking about? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, um, All right. Uh, so this person recently started seeing a person who identifies as being solo poly. They've been a serial monogamist for the most part with sprinklings of consensual non monogamy here and there. They've been very open and honest and have told me that they believe their eventual goal would be to find their person and be monogamous, but they aren't dating with that goal or intention in mind right now. We both know that monogamy or a hierarchical poly situation isn't going to be a goal for our relationship, nor is it a possibility, and have come to terms with our relationship having an expiration date. We care for each other a lot and communicate really well, so this is an ongoing conversation that we both acknowledge brings us sadness. We both wish to stay in each other's lives as friends whenever we eventually de-escalate things because we do have such a strong connection. Do you have any thoughts on this or any reframes that might be helpful around this situation, maybe even some tips on creating gentle de-escalation?
3: I I already have a many thoughts and opinions about this. I don't want to unload all of them at once, but I kind of want to just create maybe a little bit of a background and context for where my brain goes with this question. I feel like I remember in college this was before I was exploring non-monogamy, but really receiving the message that like expiration dating is never a good idea, like having a planned breakup is never a good idea. Now I want to reiterate this was in my more traditional monogamous days, right? Now, I do think non-monogamy creates many more opportunities for relationships to look successful in different ways, right? A relationship doesn't have to last forever in order for it to be successful. I think for me, this sounds like this is like setting a goal of kind of creating a temporary secure attachment on hard mode is, is kind of my takeaway, right? Is I don't think it's impossible to create a secure feeling relationship under these terms. But I do think it's going to be on hard mode. And I have more to say about that, but I don't want to dominate. So I'll open it up to the rest of you.
2: I will say I have done this before in multiple instances, also when I was more monogamous leaning. But, you know, I knew that this would be a relationship that would maybe last a few months. And I never was good at not still like falling really hard and doing all of the really intense things and having all of the really intense feelings that you do with someone, even as the relationship is ramping up. It's just, it's tough to not get caught up in the moment. And I think if this relationship lasts for a long period of time, maybe those sort of new relationship energy feelings aren't going to be as intense down the road. And so potentially de-escalation or maybe creating some agreements around... Perhaps as time moves on, we're not necessarily going to be spending the night at each other's house as often, or we won't, you know, go on trips with each other as often in this capacity, or we'll start to maybe not have sex or something along those lines. I don't know. It's really tough because how do you know, like, when that time is going to be? Maybe you feel it out you can always do things to help yourself not be as hurt in the moment, but I I think that that's going to happen regardless, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, like I feel like with this situation, I think people go one of two ways. Like when they have like a friendship or just connection of any kind, that's going to have an expiration date. Like some people are like, okay, because I know this is going to end, I'm going to kind of you know hold back like a little bit, so then I don't get kind of like too hurt when it when when we get to the end of it. And some people kind of go in the other direction. They're like, well, this is going to end anyway, so I'm going to lean in. I'm going to, you know, go the whole hog and, you know, really enjoy myself while it lasts. And it's going to be really sad, but at least we had a good time. And I feel like, you know, something that these two people need to be aligned on is, like, which type of person that they are. Because mm. if they are, you know, if, if one is kind of holding back and the other's, like, all in, then I feel like that's going to create, like, a lot of potential for, you know, miscommunication and drama, basically. I think another thing to consider is like, yeah, like if, if this person is kind of, you know, the business person that they're dating, like their long-term goal is to like find that person and be monogamous, that's fine. It's good that they've communicated that upfront. So like, you know, they had informed consent, they knew what they were getting into. However, you know, I agree with you, Emily, about like the, you know, kind of when is that point where they're going to be like, oh, we're transitioning. I'm transitioning from dating casually to kind of like going on my search to to find that person. Like, you know, because I wonder, you know, there's a possibility that like they might suddenly realize this one day, like they might just meet this person and suddenly be like, Oh, I want to be monogamous with them now. Bye. And then that would be like a really hard situation for, for, you know, this person who's asking the question. My only kind of reference point to this is, um, when I was at university, I didn't engage in like full relationships with people who were monogamous, but I did engage in kind of like casual, like friends with benefits y type of things with people who I knew were. You know, casually dating right now, but kind of looking to be monogamous with someone eventually, you know, which a lot of people do, right? Like, you know, like at particularly at university, you just have a lot of casual things and at some point you pick your favorite, I guess. Um, and you know, and I always knew that this was like going to be a possibility. And you know, and I was always, always open to, to that because I was like, yeah, I'm not emotionally invested. So it's like, you know, it's chill. We can be friends after and, you know, we can hang out and, and it's fine. But what actually ended up happening a lot of the time is that my friend with benefits would get into a monogamous relationship. And then their new partner would get very threatened by me and they would, and, and you know, like I've, I've been like blocked on social media. Like I've been told that they can't speak to me anymore or like that their partner had kind of very strict rules over like how close we were allowed to be as friends. And, you know, at that point, you know, I'd just be like, you know what, like I, I don't want to deal with this. Like this seems like a lot and I, I don't, I don't feel comfortable kind of, you know, engaging with you even as friends, if uh, your partner is going to be setting all these limits. Because yeah, you know, and it sucks, but like it is kind of how a lot of time, unfortunately, kind of a monogamous dating culture kind of turns out, right? Because it's like the whole point is you forsake all others and, you know, you, there's very much kind of this guarding against like potential threats, even if it's someone like me who is very respectful of their dad and would never do anything. I, I guess, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways in which this could go wrong, basically is what I'm trying to say. There needs to be like a negotiation between these two people on like, yeah, like how all in they're going to be. Like whether there's going to be like a clear point at which this person transitions from casual dating to like wanting to be monogamous and kind of how they're going to do that kind of gentle de-escalation, you know, with the suggestions that you described, Emily, and also, you know, like what would happen if this monogamous new partner has certain feelings kind of about them maintaining their friendship, you know, how would they feel about that? Because, you know, I, I think people would be like, I was very surprised when someone I'd been sleeping with, say, for like two years even if we weren't romantic, there was emotional intimacy in our connection. I thought like our friendship meant something and they just throw it away. They just be like, oh, well, you know, I found my person now. They said XYZ. I Y, Z. I don't want to talk to you anymore. And I'd be like, yeah, what? Yeah, that's a really you're good here. point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like you need to make sure that you're aligned on that front because, yeah, a lot of people just assume you're on the same page about that and they make assumptions and, you know, yeah. and then feelings get hurt.
3: Yeah, that reminds me of a story of my own. And I'm going to pull this from the archives that I like to title, you know, Times When My Mouth Wrote Checks That My Ass Couldn't Cash. And what am I mean by that was when I was with someone. Oh, please elaborate. <laughs> well, I was like feeling very magnanimous. It was maybe a somewhat similar situation of this person was sort of on the fence about non-monogamy. I mean, they, they weren't super upset or triggered by it. You know, they were supportive, but they were sort of honest about like, I don't know. Like, I don't know if this is in my future. I might be monogamous. Eventually, I don't know. And I was just an angel of compassion and support of this person. Just like, I don't care. You know, I just want you in my life. I want us to support each other. We can be friends. Like even if you go and become monogamous with the love of your life, like that's totally fine. Like I totally get it. Right. And then my ass couldn't cash that because I realized that when that happened, when yeah, he found his person, then he and then it was sort of that like, well, this person doesn't like you so I can't really talk to you, this is going to be a problem, K, okay, bye. That I realized that when I was being so generous in that sense, like in the back of my mind, it was like, yeah, I've created this whole narrative of how that's going to go already. You know, I've created mm. this whole narrative of like how this person is going to become monogamous in a way that's going to be- cause the minimum amount of hurt and damage to my feelings. Like I already kind of assumed, oh, it's going to go in this super smooth way and be great. And instead it happened in this really abrupt way. And so so I share that just in the sense of, I think, to piggyback off of what Leanne was saying is have a little bit of a reality check with yourself about what you're expecting, about how this may go. See if that matches if that with the other person's expectations of how this may go. And maybe allow yourself and give yourself permission that regardless of how the two of you work this out or what agreements you make or what kind of plan you make, have permission to just know that this ultimately may still be more upsetting than you realize that it is. Even with both of you fully on board, fully aware of what may happen, that it may still really hurt a lot.
1: I just want to add one one last piece here just to kind of throw another side into this is I've had this situation several times in, in my own life where either I knew this from the start or suspected that they eventually wanted a monogamous relationship with someone else or times where I, I didn't know that that was coming. I found that for me, most of the time that's happened, it hasn't been this like, you have to cut off communication with this person. It hasn't gone to that kind of extreme, wow, I didn't expect that to happen at all. But even with everything being amicable, we just didn't stay very close. And that, I think that's something else to keep in mind in terms of setting your expectations is there's also a really good chance that you'll have a great time and you'll think back on this relationship positively but you might not stay as close as you think you would right now, and that that's okay. Like, I still think positively about those relationships, and when we do get in touch or see each other, it's, it's great, and we get along well, and everything's fine, but it, it is hard to maintain that same level of closeness, and I think going making that transition really smooth, like people imagine, often doesn't happen. So just just to kind of set some expectations and understand that doesn't mean it's a failure, Doesn't mean you did it wrong, but that you might not be as close after that and that that's okay.
0: Yeah, I think de-escalations often look really good on paper. And then in practice, they can be really complicated because, you know, if you're imagining like the relationship, anarchy, smorgasbord situation with all the different plates of romantic, platonic, sexual, whatever. You know, it's not as simple as being like, oh, you know, we were romantic and sexual and platonic, and now we take out these bits, and <laughs> that's fine. There's a lot of overlap, there's, you know, a lot of kind of mixed feelings, um, and sometimes it can be really complicated, you know, yeah. holding on to what was, you know, what you want to maintain and what feels good about the connection while zips, at the same time kind of grieving, like, what you've taken away, what you've lost. And again, that's why, like, so many people just kind of prefer a clean break and not to kind of talk to their exes, because sometimes staying friends and kind of de-escalating, that transition is really painful and sometimes draws it out even more. And so, you know, I've, I've de-escalated slash kind of broken up with various people, and it never turns out the, the way that you expected, you know, sometimes in good ways and sometimes not.
2: All righty, let's move on to the next one. My long-distance partner isn't interested in sexting, sending sexy pics, saying sexual things over video dates, or even saying pretty benign things like, I just thought about that really hot night we had on the beach, or I'm just missing your body. He has no problem saying these kind of things and much dirtier things to me when we're together in person, but he says he gets freaked out by these things being sent or said over the internet. It's getting frustrating for me because I really need this kind of stuff, not only to get me excited for him and help with fantasies, but also as reassurance that he's thinking of me in this way and misses being with me sexually. I've asked him to come up with code words or phrases that mean he's thinking of certain sexy things, but he hasn't yet. He usually says, well, you should just assume that I am. You don't need to hear me say it. But that's not how I work. I'm a words of affirmation person, and oh my god, I do need to hear him say it. Kind of at a loss for how to fix this, thanks I've been thinking about this question quite a lot just because i I know like I'm not a words of affirmation person, and my partner definitely is, and I have other love languages that I prefer, but I just do want to throw out there right off the bat like you can't change anyone, <laughs> and you can't like tell a person to do something and expect them to necessarily do it unless they really want to do it. I think for myself. Even though I know that I'm not a words of affirmation person, I know that my partner is and I want to do something that makes him feel good. So even if it's a little bit more challenging for me, I try to take that extra step because I know that it'll make him feel good and vice versa. You know, he says, oh, I really enjoy being able to do acts of service for you, even though it's not necessarily the first thing that I jump to. I appreciate the opportunity to be able to do it just because I know that it'll it'll make you feel happy. So I think those things of let's uh, do code words or something along those lines, maybe that is a really good option. But if he's not going to pick up the mantle and do it, I don't know what there is to say. Like, you may just not be able to get him to do it.
3: Well, I think it's important to point out that side of it, right? That it's like obviously we can't force somebody to do something they're ultimately not comfortable doing, right? We can't just coerce something into this. I can relate to this situation, um, particularly when I was sort of trapped long distance over the pandemic with another partner of mine, and being able to care for our relationship and also especially care for like the sexual side of our relationship really caused me a lot of anxiety. So I mean, on the one hand, this person mentions that like they've asked their partner to come up with code words. The partner hasn't. That's the part that I'm kind of zeroing in on here because I'm like, okay, sure. I know it can be annoying to feel like I need to step up with this extra mental labor, but it's like you can also be the one to suggest like, what about this code phrase? Because your partner could come up with something and it doesn't do it for you. Right. Or like you don't really like it, you know, and so. This may be a case of you needing to guide a little bit and like kind of get that ball rolling and hopefully hopefully it does become a collaborative effort, not just like dictating to your partner, you need to say these things to me.
2: Microscripts.
3: Yeah, you know, create a microscript, right? Um, even if it's just like a code word emoji exchange, like that can be something. But I, I think I'm I'm also more interested in I think the missing information here is does this person's partner understand the importance of this? You know, like, because I think there's something different between someone who, yeah, understands what their partner needs, understands that their partner is a words of affirmation person, understands why their partner wants this. And they can say, yeah, I I totally understand why you want this. And also here are my hangups. So, hey, let's try to work on finding a middle ground of some kind versus if this person completely doesn't understand why you even want this right? And this partner kind of giving the phrase of, oh, you should just assume that I'm thinking about these things. You don't need to hear me say it. To me, maybe tips off, maybe they don't really fully understand actually what's in their partner's heart and like what's driving this particular desire. So that that's kind of given some question marks for me.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with you, Dedica. Like there were a couple of question marks for me as well regarding like, oh, that's an interesting thing. And he said, like, oh, well, why do I need to do this? You should just assume that I do. Like, it does so- show like a lack of understanding of what's going on in this person's like inner world and why this is so important to them. I also find it really interesting that this person's kind of focusing on kind of like sexual words of affirmation specifically, you know, like what is that kind of tapping into? What is, what is that that they're really kind of asking for, like from their partner? And I think as well, I would really want to know why this partner is so kind of resistant to kind of providing this thing, because you know, it, like this person's mentioned how like, yeah, like they use WhatsApp and it's encrypted. So like maybe there's kind of some privacy concerns or, you know, maybe he just finds sexting cringe. I don't know. Like, so the, the this person who asked this question said, Oh, you know, in person, like he has no problem saying these things, but like over text, like they seem to find it so hard. And, and you know, like w- why? It's the same thing. And it's not like I think that in person, you know, you say things kind of spontaneously, like in the moment. And it's very different from kind of typing on a phone where you or computer or whatever like where yeah like you can kind of draft and redraft things or you know it's just it's just like a different vibe and you know some people like sexting some people like doing kind of like sexy video calls and some people are not comfortable with that for whatever reason it feels different you know if you're not like kind of face to face and i think that's like a valid preference i'm not really like a sexting person i'd have to be in in like a very specific mood to to sex with someone but, you know, I, I, I'm, yeah, very freely kind of like sexual, like in person. So, you know, I relate to kind of this person's partner. You know, like I wouldn't be as resistant, but like I, I kind of understand why, yeah, like there's this kind of difference between how, how he acts in person versus like over text. I agree with you kind of finding a bit more about like, does he understand kind of what's going on for, for the listener? And also like what's going on for him? Because this person said a lot about like why this is important to them, but hasn't said a lot about why their partners are resistant to it.
1: Yeah, I just want to throw in a couple things. One is, depending on your long distance, if you're in different time zones, that's also something that I've mm-hmm. struggled with in the past, like when mm-hmm. Dedeker has been in a different time zone, or if I've had other partners in different time zones where there's a, like, it's the middle of my work day right now. I'm not feeling very sexy. And for you, it's, you know, 10 at night and you're feeling more sexy. So there's, a, can be a little bit of a disconnect there. So just, I don't know if that's the situation here, but just to keep that in mind that that there's not a beautiful solution to it, but just something to be aware of that you might be in very different parts of your day, very different headspaces because of that. I thought of it because of Leanne, you saying, you know, you've got to be in the right headspace to to get into that. And there's even even if that is normally something you're into, the time of day might affect that. Uh, and then the other is just to reiterate the code words thing, I think is a, is a cool idea. But yeah, step up and help come up with those. And the idea of emoji is great. And that's something that I've actually done very successfully before. We're picking like not the standard, you know, eggplants and peaches and all that kind of nonsense, but like finding some other kind of emoji that's a little more of an inside reference to something between the two of you. One makes it more personal, more fun, but also more secret. So it's not just like, oh, cool. So clever. You you did the splashing water emoji. We all know what that means, right? Uh, so I think that's just something to, to remember, like you can step up and, and do some of that work to help that if this communication is important to you.
0: Um, I think kind of one final thing to add to that, which I just kind of thought of really to kind of what you said about like head spaces. I wonder if kind of, you know, there's a difference in kind of how this person and their partner experience desire. Cause you know, is it like spontaneous? Is it contextual? Like whatever. Mm. Cause like some people, you know, like, yeah, like they can get into the mood immediately, uh, and kind of all be thinking about sex like throughout the day and kind of send a sexy text. Worse, yeah, like, you know, maybe this other person, they're like, oh, well, if I'm not like physically with my partner, I'm not really kind of like thinking about that like all the time. And so it might feel really unnatural for them to kind of send a sexy text if that's not how they're feeling in the moment. So yeah, like, I wonder if that's kind of something to do with that as well, you know, like, and I'm thinking of the book Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski, which kind of talks mm-hmm. about like different types of desire and, you know, how some people kind of like have different ways of experiencing it so maybe yeah like maybe the listener is i'm i'm guessing is maybe kind of more like spontaneous like what's their partner to be more, more spontaneous whereas like the partner is a bit more like responsive maybe or like contextual um and so yeah like kind of texting that stuff doesn't feel right in the moment
1: so we're going to move on to a few more questions here but first we're going to take a quick break to talk about some ways that you can help keep this content coming to everyone out there for free every week and that is to take a moment Check out our sponsors. If any are interesting to you, go check them out. It does directly help support our show. And of course, joining our Patreon and joining our communities there is another great way to keep this content available to everyone out there for free.
4: Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you.
3: to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I. And we're back, we're gonna dive into our next question. The question asker says, although I'm both a hinge and an arm, so just to do a quick explainer for anyone who may not understand what that means. So when we refer to a hinge, usually we're referring to a V shape, wherein there's one person who has two partners, those two partners are not dating themselves, right? So the person that we're talking about is the hinge, you know, the pivot point of that V, and then the two other partners referred to as an arm. And so this person is saying they are both the hinge point and they're one of those arms as well. So although I'm both a hinge and an arm, I experience a lot less hinge anxiety than I do arm anxiety in group in-person situations. I almost experienced the inverse of what you describe in that episode, and they're referring to episode 334, where we talk about hinge dynamics. Because I tend to take too much responsibility in the other direction. I feel confident that I can be kind and present with my partners, but metamores, especially new ones, are unknowns. I have little information, no control, and this is someone that my own loved one loves a lot, so I experience high stakes that the meeting go well, with neither myself nor my metamore feeling excluded or even disappointed. What advice do you have for anxious arms? I,
1: I, again, we need people to have really good sign-offs, like anxious arms just, in Arizona. Or, you know, know. Yeah, or something. Yeah, I, that's I think if you
3: give us a good sign-off, we may bump your question to the top of the there queue, you go. so we'll yeah. incentivize yeah. it.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, so this is a question that I actually kind of get a lot um, on my page from my clients, etc., um, where people are like, oh, you know, I'm meeting my Memor for the first time and I'm really nervous about how it would go, or like I don't know how to act when I'm around my metamor. I'm really nervous, like if, if what if my my metal gets jealous if I show affection to our shared partner and stuff like that. And so yeah, like I, I think that's quite like a common anxiety because yeah, like, you know, if you're if you're a hinge, you have two partners that you know quite well and you can kind of manage that, although that comes with its own challenges. But yeah, like this person said, yeah, like this kind of person who you're not dating or maybe you don't even know that well or have never met like yeah like there's a lot of there's a there's a lot of uncertainty about how things could go and what they're like and whether they'll like you or whatever and I think a lot of the time uh, people kind of really get into their heads when they meet metamorphs about like I am meeting the metamor capt- capital M because at the end of the day you're just kind of meeting another person that your partner's that your partner happens to be dating but I really try to encourage people to go into it as, you know, like meeting like a person rather than this person my partner loves, like specifically. Because like the more you uh just focus on them as like a regular human being and you kind of get to know each other like as friends rather than as metamores specifically, the less kind of pressure there will be to kind of yeah like facilitate like a strong kind of political dynamic or like whatever it is that you're anxious about and i think that's probably yeah you know, i, I always see people experiencing a lot of insecurity about like oh what if they're really different from me or really similar to me what does that say about my relationship my partner and getting their head about that as well i think wherever possible try and kind of like distance yourself from like how you uh, how you relate to each other within the polycule and just kind of go in just i'm uh, meeting a new person
3: Yeah, it reminds me of advice that I came across when I was early in my non-monogamous journey, which happened to be at the same time that I was also early on in my own journey into like Buddhism and meditation, that I read this fantastic book called If the Buddha Dated. And that was, of course, within a dating context. But there's this huge emphasis on like when you're heading into a first date in particular and you're feeling that anxiety and the nervousness, is it going to go bad? Is it going to go well? again that emphasis on like just focus on being present and getting joy out of getting to know a new unique human being whether it goes well or not whether you think this is a match or not and i think the same thing here with a metamor. and i i appreciate that this person seems to recognize that they tend to take on too much responsibility and so maybe just a reminder of like it's not 100% your responsibility like as far as the interaction going well or building a relationship of some kind that's sort of like a shared responsibility in the sense of like, it's up to everyone to kind of show up and again, just like be good human beings and be present and then just kind of see what happens. Right. But I know I definitely tend to be like a control freak and maybe think too much about these things also. And so it's kind of like, it's all on my shoulders to make sure it all goes well and to be running around and making sure that everyone's okay. And that can come from a really positive place that can be a positive trait. And also it sounds like it's just stressing this person out. And so maybe just a good reminder that it's not 100% on your shoulders to make sure that it all goes perfectly.
2: Yeah, Dedeker, I I know that you've talked about some best practices when it comes to meeting metamores. You go on coffee dates and stuff with them. And I think that it would be fun to even do something like I'm going to go on a walk with them or I'm going to go to a yoga class and then we go get coffee afterwards. Something that's kind of a shared, we're going to do an activity together, potentially. So that sort of takes the pressure off because we're doing something else together rather than just, I have to sit down and look at you and talk to you and try to like come up with small talk or conversation. But engaging in something together is kind of nice. Now, I will say also, there is a potential that the two of you aren't necessarily going to love each other, and I think that's okay, too. To put the pressure off to a degree and just be like, I'm going to have a relationship with this person in some context because they are my partner's partner, but it doesn't necessarily need to be loving and gushing and we love each other so much. It can just be fairly neutral, which I know the two of you have also talked about as well, that sometimes if I'm neutral with my metamor, that's also okay.
0: Yeah, like I want to add to that, Emily, around kind of like the context of the meetup. I agree with you that doing something together will kind of take the pressure off of like, oh, I need to, you know, talk to you. And I also wonder if, you know, kind of uh, is this person kind of meeting them at a more like alone or like with their shared partner? Are they meeting just the three of them or like are they meeting in a larger group context? Because like for me, uh, and, you know, like that, this is my individual preference and, you know, different people do different things. But for me, like when I introduce partners to each other or when I meet a metamor or two, like I I prefer to do it in like a larger group setting, say like at a larger social with like other people there. So there isn't kind of, if you're worried that you and your metamor might not get along then and, you know, or you might run out of things to talk about, then, you know, there's other people to talk to. There isn't kind of so much pressure to be constantly focused on each other a hundred percent of the time in like a larger group you know, if you're looking for ways to take the pressure off and not kind of make it out like it, this is the um <laughs> meet, um, you know, making it like, yeah, like, you know, meeting at like a larger gathering kind of might help with that. Like so, some people might view it differently. Like I know some people definitely prefer the more kind of intimate meeting, like over drinks or coffee or something. Um, But for me, like I've always kind of preferred like a larger social because I can talk to other people, come back to them. Bring them to talk to this person, get other people involved, talk about different things. You know, there's a bit more kind of variety. Um, there isn't as much pressure. So like, I think the kind of context here is really important. Um, and yeah, like, I agree. Like, you know, you might not love your metamore. Um, but you know, you don't have to like vibe like super well as people. I, I-, I think kind of the whole emphasis around kitchen table polyamory and compassion and kind of stuff like that. I feel like a lot of people have this pressure to be like absolute besties with their more and. That's not the case, right? Like, you know, you guys have talked on ep- episodes about like different types of polyamory, like garden party polyamory and lap sitting polyamory and, you know, all these other terms. And, and you know, there's so much like nuance, like in these dynamics, you know, like I have metamorphs who like I see like every week and I have metamorphs who like I've met once and, you know, we know each other from afar and are fine with that, you know, like it's, and as long as you are respectful and civil towards each other, you know, and you respect like each other's relationships and you appreciate like, the mutual value or whatever or, you know enjoyment that you give to your shared partner that's really that's really all you need you can be very different people you don't have to get along of course like if you if you like each other and like spending time together then that's great but it's not it's not a guarantee nor nor is it a prerequisite for healthy yeah.
1: all right i'm gonna take us to our next question here this one is as someone with bipolar 2 I struggle with partners understanding my unpredictable mood changes, despite being upfront about my condition and sharing resources. Can you provide advice for neurodivergent individuals like myself on how to better communicate our emotional experiences to our neurotypical partners? And I would even add to that, just someone who has a different type of neuroatypicalness, too, right? That we've talked about this before on episodes about, you know, about being neurodivergent is that. That's not a catch-all where it's all the same, right? There's a whole huge variety of that. So I think this is a great question, though, of how can I better communicate those needs to facilitate partners being able to date you while you have whatever it is, right? In this case, bipolar too.
3: I can speak from the other side of it since I'm currently dating someone who is on, like, the mood disorder spectrum, which does include bipolar. So again, representing the other side of this, for myself... I know I had to have a big mindset shift because I think that for many years, the way that I approached this person was the sense of like, oh, this person experiences emotions the same way that I do. They just experience them more intensely. That's all it is, right? And so that means that maybe the things that I do to emotionally regulate will work for them as well. They just maybe need to do it more intensely than I do. And sort of thinking that we were say the same in that regard. And eventually I did have to have a shift in my thinking of realizing, oh, no, it's just straight up different. <laughs> I cannot project what I know about my own emotions or about the ways that my emotions work onto this person and think that I understand what it is that they're going through. And so for me, that was a big impetus behind realizing oh no i actually need to like research this and consume resources and talk to other people and like talk to therapists and like actually get as much information as i can to actually try to understand what's going on with my partner in addition to to hearing his input right his description of what's going on with him you know so it's like i need to listen to that i need to believe that i need to make an effort to understand that and i also need to educate myself more So for myself, it was turning towards resources and then also making sure that those resources matched what his experience was. You know, so for instance, like, you know, I went and read a really fantastic book that was specifically about when you're in a partnership with someone with borderline personality disorder. But also, as I was reading it, was kind of checking in with him about, okay, so this book says this and they talk about this. Does that match your experience? Or this book suggests this, does that seem like that's something that would be helpful for you so that it could be a dialogue? So as far as making it helpful here, and maybe it's similar to what we were talking about with the question before, is I almost wonder about that understanding point. There's a little more information in this question that we didn't read. You know, if you feel like, do your partners just really not understand what's going on? Do you feel like they haven't made an effort to actually understand? Like I kind of wonder about that as well.
0: Yeah. So I don't, have bipolar, nor do I have any partners who are bipolar. However, I am another form of neurodivergent. So I was diagnosed autistic when I was five. And two years ago, I was also diagnosed with ADHD. And, you know, I do struggle a lot kind of explaining this to partners sometimes about my kind of unique needs and accommodations and things like that. And yeah, like I, I, think, I think it is difficult because a lot of the time people are ableist without realizing that they are. For me, with autism, like particularly because like I, like when people first meet me, like I'm not someone that t- people would typically like clock as autistic. I guess um, you know, like I make good eye contact. I really like being social. You know, I don't fit the stereotypes of like what people think of. And then so a lot of people kind of assume like that I've like gotten over it somehow. Um, when you know, in reality, like I still have those needs. They just kind of crop up in unexpected situations, and you know, and that can be a shock to people sometimes. And also because like, I don't kind of, I don't know, present kind of outwardly autistic Or I just, I, just I, I hope you're understanding what I'm trying to say here. That there's almost kind of this pressure that I experience from partners who aren't very familiar with it, that I should kind of get over myself and, oh, if you learn how to do these things and you conform in this way, then, you know, why is this bit so difficult for you? Or why did you suddenly kind of break the trend and act so differently? And that can be, you know, its own kind of very like covert, like ableism. And in other scenarios, like I've had partners be like extremely understanding and very accommodating of my disabilities, but then you know if we were fighting or if we were ending the relationship, then they'd suddenly weaponize that and use it against me, you know or like you know if I got really triggered, had a meltdown, they'd be like you know they'd mock me or whatever and you know which has been horrible right and i i, I one thing that really kind of stood out to me about this question is you know how this person kind of mentioned how they they feel like they need to kind of apologize for the way that they are kind of biologically, you know, and I think this is like as a result of, you know, like a society that is kind of built like a certain way to accommodate neurotypical kind of, as I prefer to say, like neuroconforming kind of people, which kind of like there's not, there's, there's, you know, how this person's brain works is just like a different way. It's not wrong. It's, you know, and it's, and it's fine. And I think if you're dating someone who makes you feel bad about something that's out of your control, or if someone make it makes you feel like a burden or an inconvenience, like that's kind of probably not someone that you know you really kind of want to be with long term because they'll always see your disability as something that's like separate to you, rather than something that's kind of like part of like who you are. And obviously, there are like complications that can come up with disabilities, and you know if if plans get cancelled and things like that, yes, that is frustrating. But like I think the worst thing you can do is blame your partner for it, and make them feel bad about it because you know. There's nothing you can say or do that they aren't already thinking themselves because of the shame that's kind of put on people with disabilities or just neurodivergencies or whatever, just on an institutional level. I think it's really hard. You know, at the end of the day, it's really difficult to tell whether someone is kind of fully on board and understanding um, until you've kind of been together for a little while. And even then, sometimes, you know, you don't know until you're in conflict and you find out that this is something that they resented about you this whole time the best thing you can do is just kind of explain kind of like how or like what your needs are and you know find people who will accommodate that and if people shame you or guilt trip you or try make you kind of apologize for for this then you know they're not they're not the person for you
1: yeah i want to just reiterate the idea of giving them resources not just yourself like kind of offloading some of the burden of needing to explain it yourself like dedeker mentioned there's there's some books out there as far as What specific ones? What again, what was the name of the one you the one
3: that was really helpful for me was Loving Someone with Borderline Personality Disorder by Dr. Sherry Manning.
1: Yeah. And I've learned a lot through Dedeker reading that book and just kind of sharing what she's (laughs) been learning through that as well. But that kind of a resource makes a lot of sense, right? Because you're not having to take on all of that work yourself, but at the same time, like Dedeker mentioned, checking in and explaining, you know, which parts of this do track and make sense for you and which parts don't, right? Like we've talked about that before. If someone is new to polyamory and you just say, read some books, they might have a totally different idea of what that means based on just reading some other people's books than what that means for you. So just be sure to get into that. But I will say that having those resources is helpful, again, as the person who has been a a partner or friend to people with bipolar specifically, that it Again, just socially, we're taught to take a lot of responsibility for our partner's emotional states. And I would bet that that's part of what's going on here is that your partner is reacting poorly to it because they've been taught that how you're feeling is their responsibility or their fault, you could say, in a more intense way, I guess, but that it's their responsibility to get you out of it or that it must be their fault that you're in that state in the first place. And that unlearning for them can be really challenging. And so having resources outside of just yourself, I think will really help that because that is a a tough thing to learn because we're not taught that we're not taught how to have that sense of what's the difference between something I should be helping with or something where you need time to deal with this your own way or whatever that is. It's hard. I'm still working on it myself.
2: Yeah, when we have friends, sometimes we give them grace more than we do our partners. And if somebody like cancels plans, for instance, we may be like, oh, that's okay with our friends and feel more strongly about it when it is a partner when they're having a moment where they say, I simply can't do this right now, or I need to bail out or I need to go cry in the corner or something along those lines. So I, I think from the experience that I've had with this friend who I've had for a very long time, and we've had ups and downs, and um, OCD is what she is diagnosed with, and I think I've learned a lot regarding this friendship in terms of my own, I guess, ideas about how a friend can still be really important in my life, even if it, isn't, if it doesn't look exactly the way that all of my other friendships do. And even if there are times when I'm like, wow, this person is flaky, but actually they're just going through something and they can't be there in the way that I think that they maybe should be or whatever it is. So as somebody who may date somebody who is neurodivergent in any way, just realize, like, give your partner that grace, like Leanne said, if you don't, then maybe the two of you aren't right for each other. Maybe that's not something that the two of you should be doing together, because I think we need to be understanding of whatever it is that's going on.
3: Yeah, we're good to move on.
2: All right. So our last question is, wondering if you could talk a bit about being a racially minoritized person in the polyam community and point to some resources for the white people who want to date us, asking as someone who is neither black or white and finds that most resources and voices talking about this are generally one or the other. So keen to hear from another person outside of the black-white binary that it gets made out to be sometimes. I think this was specifically for you, Leanne.
0: I, th- I think, like, uh, so apart from myself, um, you know, there's a couple of other, like, Asian kind of polyamorous creators, or just kind of creators who aren't black or white in the community, like on Instagram. Like, I know the probably the, the most well-known one is at polyamorous while Asian, also known as Michelle High. I think she's been on your show before.
3: Yeah, she's mm-hmm. fantastic.
0: Yeah. Um, and there's also uh Sydney Rachin who um goes by like sexy soup dumplings and there's also uh Jada under, uh, underscore kissed. Um like they're all kind of yeah, Asian creators who are polyamorous. As far as I know, they don't post like that often, but like what they have posted has been good. But like, you know, I confess it isn't really a topic that I've covered a huge amount. On my page for a couple of reasons. I think that race is like such like a complex topic, and I think as someone from the uh, UK with like a majority US audience, you know, like I think the dynamics of race, are like are uh, you know obviously there's still kind of racism and stuff like that in the UK, but like it's like from a very different lens than in the US, and so I feel like what I have to share like is not necessarily kind of relatable to the vast majority of my audience. Um, so it's it's not something that like I've kind of like posted a lot of content about, uh, you know, publicly anyway. I think that a lot of the like advice, uh, like online around you know dating culture, particularly like fetishization of like Asian, particularly Asian women, and kind of like the history behind that colonial, you know, is is like relevant across the board whether you're monogamous or polyamorous. I think the only thing that I would have to add to kind of what's already out there, like in just dating world, like generally. Like, I think it can be in, in the same way that like it might be a red flag if like I as an Asian person like meet someone who has only ever had Asian girlfriends. Often I'm like, mm, yeah, I might want to kind of investigate like why that is. And, you know, like it's, a, it's like a yellow flag. And, and in the same way, like if someone like, yeah, like, have, like also has another partner or kind of multiple partners like presently. Like you know, who who are the same race as me? Then like that might be kind of something to kind of have a conversation about. Like you know, because sometimes it's like yeah sometimes it's kind of racial fetishization and sometimes it's just like the spaces that you run in or yeah like you know maybe you're like that this person's you know an activist or whatever and yeah there's kind of a lot of people in the space that they happen to meet, right i think it's complex yeah like i like i agree that there isn't that much um information kind of out there that like outside of the the black white binary and i've been kind of thinking more about posting more content about kind of my experiences around that but That will take a while because it's also like just a generally emotionally difficult topic. And I don't want to kind of like force myself to talk about a topic just because I'm Asian. Sure.
3: I mean, I was going to hop on the bandwagon just to say I think your voice would be really appreciated. On that topic, mostly because the fact that, like, in my opinion, I think it's helpful for American audiences to be exposed to non-U.S. centric takes on various topics. (laughs) No, because seriously, because we can get kind of bogged down in the weeds. Right. And in a very American way, can kind of project like, oh, if this is how it is here, it must be like this everywhere. Or if these are the problems here, they must be the same problems everywhere, you know, and can really erase a lot of the experiences of people who are just not from the U.S., right, or race, a lot of what problems are aren't there. So I would put in a vote for, you know, whenever that's the right time for that. I think it would be a valuable voice in the space.
2: Yeah,
0: I appreciate that. Thank you.
2: (laughs) Well, this has been great, Leanne. If anyone out there doesn't know where they can find more of you and your work, can you tell our listeners?
0: Yeah, so you can find me um uh, across kind of multiple social media platforms. Um I'm most active on Instagram at Polyphilia Blog, P-O-L-Y-P-H-I-L-I-A-B-L-O-G. Um, but you can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, or X or whatever the hell they're calling it now. Um I'm also on <laughs> I'm also on on YouTube and I've got a Patreon. Uh, I also do kind of like private peer support. Um, I'm a therapist in training as well. But yeah, like in the meantime, kind of peer support is what I offer um, to individuals, couples, and groups around the world. Oh, and I'm also on TikTok.
2: Excellent. Thank you so much for being here. And for all of you out there, our question, which we're going to post on our Instagram stories this week, is Have you ever expiration dated? Why? What was your experience? And the best place to share your thoughts with other listeners is in the episode discussion channel in our Discord server, or you can post on our private Facebook group. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash Multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on threads, Facebook, TikTok, or Instagram. Multiamory is created and produced by J.S. Lindgren, Dedeker Winston, and me, Emily Matlack. Our production assistants are Rachel Schennewark and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on Multiamory.com.